Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're at episode 94. It is September 6th. My name's Tyler and of course, as always, I'm with Pratik and Nick. So starting with Pratik, how you been? I'm good. Um, same thing. I'm ready for a new show. A lot of things has happened this week. We have a lot of cool topics to bring you, including a new prime minister as well. So we're going to talk about that as well. Nick, what's going on with you, man? I'm doing great. I've got some red lighting in uh, the background of my room a little bit. It's a little off camera. You can't see it. But um, feeling like uh, Scar from The Lion King or, as Ben Shapiro compared that scene to, uh, Joe Biden while he was giving his speech last week. So we're also going to be touching on that. There, I have to say, all right, as the resident Democrat on this podcast, there was some blue in the background that gets cropped out a lot. But still, not the best lighting job, we can all agree, especially when the cameras are zoomed in on your face and all that's behind you is this big red. You're holding up your fists in anger. Eh, just not a great look. But you know what? I liked it. And uh, we can argue about that later. But yeah, anyway, maybe not. Maybe not so Democrat, given that you're listening to Ben Shapiro now. Maybe Pratik's rubbing off on you. No, I'm only seeing it for the memes. Yes. All right. Well, we're going to be talking about that Biden story and his speech and him being critical of the MAGA people. Of course, we're going to get into that. But we're going to be kicking off with Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of Soviet Union, had died. So uh, he ended the Cold War without bloodshed, of course, in the 90s, but failed to prevent the absolute collapse of the Soviet Union. And he died on Tuesday at the age of 91. Gorbachev, the last Soviet president, forged arms reduction deals with the U.S. and partnerships with other Western powers to remove the Iron Curtain that had divided Europe since World War II. But this internal reform helped weaken the Soviet Union to the point where it fell apart, and that's a moment that President Vladimir Putin had called the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, and we're dealing with the ramifications of that now. So just, just letting you know that he had passed away. He was a major political figure um, by, at the end of the Soviet Union, and with Putin you know, being on the offensive now, it just comes to light that uh, what happened then is still impacting us today. Yeah, and it's ironic that in shutting down the gas pipeline, which if you listen to any of the, you know, the Economist, Financial Times, whatever, they had all these experts on saying that it was going to be a temporary stoppage, that Russia was going to keep on the pressure to basically say, hey, at any power Europe, we have the ability to stop and start this pipeline whenever we want, so you should be scared, and we still have the upper hand. We're going to use that as leverage. And then, of course, they gave it the full shutdown a couple of days ago. And then what did they do? They turned around and they blamed Western sanctions on them shutting down the gas pipeline. So I, like Tyler was saying, a lot of things going on at this stage where Putin has been very clear that he sees it as the biggest geopolitical disaster of the last century, trying desperately to reverse it. But it's very clear that they're gaining little to no ground in Ukraine and, if anything, are being made a mockery of on the world stage. Yeah, it's sad for, I mean, Ukraine, that all this stuff is happening, but at least they're pulling it off and having a better chance at getting further along in this war. Yeah, but let, let's talk a little bit about the Gazprom 1 pipeline. So we actually hadn't touched on that story, but yeah. recently Russia did shut off this pipeline to Europe that had been running for a very, very long time, and it was a crucial pipeline for Europe. So what are the ramifications of that? Well, I mean, what I think is going to happen is Russia is going to try to divert some of their, invest some of their investments and the amount of um, resources they're putting into other pipelines that they own. Gazprom has a lot of different parts to it. So, I mean, that is, a, is was still one of the largest natural gas producers in the world. Now, you shut it down, but at the same time, they have other forms of natural gas as well that they're still providing to people. 
This could be more catastrophic to other European countries that are reliant on natural gas from Europe because that is a lot of countries. Sure, in their economic situation and for the war situation, what's going on with Ukraine, that's a major win for Ukraine. But we have to see what the ramifications are to all these other countries that are relying still on Russian natural gas to be provided to them, especially before winter. Well, Pratik. It's it's not really a, a win for Ukraine here, because if anything, it's sort of saying, hey, look, our European allies who were, were kind of relying on to supply us with arms, munitions, yeah, just health, you know, health care, um, just basic supplies, bringing that in. A lot of it's coming from Germany through Poland into Ukraine. And so it's like if you're, you know, kind of doubling down and saying, hey, Europeans, as winter is coming up and as you're going to be in a crunch for fuel, not only in terms of of prices, but also just people freezing and being pretty cold. I mean, the German winters, it's not like Russian winters, but it still gets to be like 30 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere in that range. So it's pretty freaking cold at certain times. And if you don't have natural gas to heat your home, then that's a very real cost that you're imposing on the German citizens who, in a democracy, since they're voting, they can sort of say, hey, government, you know, we do want to take a stand against Russia, but right now we need heat in our homes. So please work out some deal where we can still support Ukraine but also get the Russian gas. It, it's not like they can flip a switch and you know, transition to other sources right now. They still are reliant on this pipeline, unfortunately. I wonder why, actually, I don't wonder. Maybe Putin did it now because we're about to head into winter and they didn't have time to prepare some alternative ways to get natural gas in these countries that are so reliant on it. So, Pratik, why do you think, uh, why do you think Putin did this now? Do you think it's a signal that they're just being beaten so much by Ukraine they have to be serious with the threats they're making to the rest of the world that are really funding Ukraine and keeping them alive in this war? Personally, I don't. Um, I do think that... I mean, Russia is losing right now in the war, but I wouldn't go that far. I would say this, that Russia is going to do whatever they can in their advantage to try to give themselves an advantage. And they do have a limited advantage in this situation because they have the ability to do that. We've talked about this on the show countless times. Me and Nick have debated about it a lot, but Europe should have done something instead of becoming reliant on Russian natural gas to begin with in 2010, but they did. And that's part of the ramifications now. No one thought we'd be at war, but hey, these people thought that Russia wasn't even a superpower anymore back then. And now but, kind of is waning. But regardless, the energy situation for Europe is tragic because they're all reliant on uh, reliant on Russian natural gas. So I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder if America is going to step up in the game. Biden has been the anti-fracking and all this stuff, but unless America does something in this situation, there's not many other natural gas providers that can legitimately fill their void. So mm -hmm. that's my thoughts on this. Yeah, and, and Russia can, do you think they could withstand the economic hit from this? Because clearly they're sacrificing some, you know, some money from not providing that to Europe. I think when you're an authoritarian country and your country literally is ran by one person and that economy revolves around that one person, it really doesn't matter. I mean, it's sad. It sounds terrible for the people of Russia. Their economy is going to go down. But the fact is that what are you going to do? It's not like they're going to kick Putin out of office. So it's like for Putin, he just has to play the long game. I mean, for everybody yeah. else, it would be in this kind of situation. Like let's say that Putin was Biden. Then that would be a different scenario. But the thing is that Putin is going to be the leader and he's going to be the leader until he dies. So what yeah. difference does it make? 
And, you know, in some places we have leaders that didn't quite make it that far. Places where you could remove your leaders, like the UK and Boris Johnson. So now that we have a new prime minister, what's going on, Pratik? So Liz Truss has become the United Kingdom's new prime minister, succeeding Boris Johnson, who resigned in July after a series of scandals. The 47-year-old Truss defeated rival Rishi Sunak in the Conservative Party leadership contest and will become Britain's third prime minister, female prime minister, after Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. Truss was elected to Parliament in 2010 and within a relatively short period of time rose up the ranks within the Conservative Party. She served under three prime ministers in several different cabinet jobs, most recently as foreign secretary under Boris Johnson. As an MP, Truss has held many strong positions on all sides of her political spectrum, including being a staunch ally of liberal conservative leader David Cameron to becoming the figurehead of the Eurosceptic right that advocated and helped initiate the move from, uh, move from the situation of Brexit. In her victory speech, Truss promised to cut taxes to grow the economy, deliver on the energy and environmental crisis, and to help bolster their universal health care program, the National Health Service. So, Nick, Tyler, do you have any thoughts on Liz Truss? Yeah, I mean, look, she's nothing new. I mean, it's the same old tired speech that the Tories have had for a long time, which is, oh, we're going to cut taxes, grow our economy. Somehow cutting taxes and strengthening the NHS, the national health care yeah. system that they have in Britain, uh, it never made any sense as a platform. It still doesn't make any sense now. I mean, the one thing that, Pratik, I think you would agree with her on is the energy stuff. She's saying the UK is too reliant on other places for energy. We got to do more of this at home. And she's pretty bullish on not just the green projects like Boris Johnson, who actually was pretty bullish on a lot of green projects, but um, she's also looking at some of the natural gas stuff that people had sort of left behind, which is making people on the left in Great Britain a little nervous because they're sort of saying, you know, that's where Extinction Rebellion is very big. That's where the Sunrise Movement is very big. That's where all these sort of left-wing environmental movements are quite big is in the UK. And it's not just the environmental movements. It's also in terms of the powers that city councils have, you know, town planning commissions, whatever, I mean, hell, there was one place, I, I'm forgetting the name of it, whether it was Quincy or not, but one locality in Great Britain actually voted in favor. They put out, you know, they bid on a project for solar, right? And then they were like, oh, we'll put solar panels on top of our municipal roof. It'll look great. And then they said, no, we don't want to do this because it's going to look ugly. <laughs> so it's like the, the country's all over the place in terms of that. And so I think that's one thing to be, um, you know, kind of think of positively about her coming in is, hey, People in Great Britain are really feeling the crunch on energy prices. She says she's going to do something about it. That's good. But that aside, I, I think the same old tired party stuff of we're going to cut taxes and boost growth after you leave the EU, I just don't think it's going to work. I think when it comes to Liz Truss, she's succeeding Boris Johnson. One opinion that I have about Boris Johnson is Boris Johnson was the most pushover candidate leader that they've had in the Conservative Party. Conservative Party is known as a party of strength. They want to focus on military strength. They want to focus on a country that is leading in all aspects of the world. And that's where the Labour and, Lib and the Conservative Party always have their, you know, feuds on, on and off against. Because a lot of these things like the environment and the universal healthcare system, they all have a lot of common ground. It's like it's not as separate as the Republican and Democratic Party in the United States because there is a lot of commonalities between the two parties. But the main things that makes them different is the Conservative Party pushes for more of a stronger military while the Labour Party pushes to eliminate the military. It's like the extremes when it's in the military in the UK. 
And one of the things that makes Liz Truss more powerful than Boris Johnson is Boris Johnson came in and like, you know, in this way that he was going to change up everything. He was supposed to be the Trump of the United Kingdom. And he wasn't. He was one of the most pushover candidates. He was like Bloomberg, but is the prime minister of United Kingdom. But he did kind of look like Trump. Yeah, you, know, you got to give that's that that that's why they tried to compare him all the time. But he wasn't a, he wasn't as very he wasn't as charismatic. He had a lot of problems in his prime ministership, including all his scandals about when he told people that they can't go party. And then he went to go party, things like that. But when it comes to Liz Truss, I think this is a good move for England as a whole because they're moving into trying to, you know, bolster themselves and trying to have a stronger economy as a whole. And in and, and the end of the day, trying to make up for all the losses that happened during COVID during within the United Kingdom. I don't think Boris Johnson was the guy for it. Liz Truss is more potential to be a great prime minister. And I think some of these things, like as you said, about how they can't cut taxes and then spend money. But the fact is is that in UK, Demo liberals and conservative uh, uh, Labour Party and Conservative Party are about the same thing on a lot of those things. They both spend more. They both focus on the same thing. They even have a lot of the same policies as opposed to the United States within our two party system. So I think it's a little bit different in UK. But in the end of the day, I think it's good that they got a new change. We'll see how she goes. And if she's not a good prime minister, then she will probably get eliminated or removed during the next presidential next prime ministership election and that's going to take place because this was just a conservative party vote yeah that's a good point pratik i think that's something that you know kind of sounds pretty un i don't know it sounds like something that shouldn't happen to us at this point in the united states which is having the party pick their leader it's like if the republicans said okay mitch mcconnell's president or the democrats said okay nancy pelosi is president We'd be like, no, we want to vote on that. We want there to be a general election. We want us to actually have a voice in this. So like you were saying, I think that's a very important point. The fact that this was purely done by people in the parties and had nothing to do with the general vote. So that is a very real thing. And I feel like electioning or election campaigning is going to start uh, not long after this decision. So something to look out for. Yes, true. And on the other side of the Atlantic in the U.S., what do we have going on, Nick? Yeah, so we have uh, so many things with uh, Mr. Mr. Joe Biden getting very tough this week. Um, before we get to his big speech in which he was rebuking MAGA as an extreme ideology that was sort of the enemy of the country. Not He didn't say the enemy, but in no uncertain terms, he really did say that. Um, OSTP issued guidance this week to make, or last week, to make federally funded research freely available to the public and so this has been a huge issue which is the federal government funds research okay it gets done it gets published in some journal that no one has access to these things cost so much money unless you're actually in a university chances are you're not going to have access to it so what they did was they basically said look if taxpayers are funding research what should happen is that when you release the research taxpayers should be able to view it it should be free so the head of ostp Dr. Alondra Nelson said, when research is widely available to other researchers in the public, it can save lives, provide policymakers with the tools to make critical decisions, and drive more equitable outcomes across every sector of society. End quote. There should be no delay or barriers between the American public and returns on their investment in research. And it's kind of building on their efforts to level the playing field for innovation in the United States, trying to make sure that we're a world leader. And part of that is making sure that you know, especially, for example, look at a small startup. Are they going to have access to a scientific journal to read through all the new breakthroughs and discoveries that they could potentially use in their startup? 
No, they're not. It's too much money. So I think this is a very positive step in the right direction. Taxpayers are already funding this research. I think we should all be able to view it. Pratik, Tyler? Let's play devil's advocate here. So let's, I have to imagine the reason they kept it hush-hush for a little, for a long time up until now was because they were afraid of leaking uh, security information to other countries oh, that no. could potentially help them out. Um, so you don't think that's a concern here? Because certainly when they have uh, government-funded research in Russia or China or any other large country, they're not publishing that data. That's not something we could view, but they can take it from us. So at, so, at, at some level, that's putting it, us at some disadvantage compared to those guys so how would you respond to that i would say we're not putting out tsci data that's incorporated into research if something's done at that level for example we're not going to get nsa research on all the cybersecurity stuff sure it's federally funded but that's not going to be included in this this is more so like hey you're contracting out the research of a certain you know battery material to some university they run a bunch of tests on it and they say hey here's what we found on this battery it's not like it's for military purposes. Tyler, if it was for military purposes, I would totally agree with you if it was something that was actually sensitive. But this is more for research that's just like, hey, we went to measure a wetland and we were looking at the quad- like the, the ecosystem and the quality of the water well, and all that other stuff. It's it's not really military stuff. Well, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily say that though either, Nick, because it says all agencies will fully implement this policy. And it says all publications and research funded by taxpayers will be publicly accessed. I think Nick's right, because I still think there are security clearances and classified information and all that. But I even think on the most basic level, like we're talking about batteries or just making things function better, I don't know if that's necessarily information that we should be given to these other countries for free when they don't give it the same to us. And it would be very difficult to ensure only American citizens are getting this information as well. This becomes public information for everybody. Yeah, that's fair. I I don't know. I would feel like if you're really worried about whether or not the Chinese Communist Party government has access to research being done in universities, I mean, they've already got agents (laughs) that are going to be able to give them that information. Slash, they could just buy the rights to a journal. And it's not like that's money going back Mm. to the U.S. government or back to the American taxpayer. That's money that's going to some private journal that's published these findings. So if anything, I really do think that this is a better thing. And that way also, just for web traffic, it's like, okay, then you can kind of figure out who's accessing all this stuff. I don't know. I just see it as pretty positive. But I see what you're saying. And I will say another thing. I mean, if you look at it from that perspective that Tyler is bringing out, if you do open up all this information to everybody, that also means that everybody in their countries will potentially have access to this information. I don't know how much censorship really impacts out, you know, how much information people in China have. But the more and more information like this that you have available to the public, the more and more people see the benefits of having public information and being able to see like what you can do in a democratic society where everybody is working towards a greater goal. And that stuff doesn't exist in a lot of those countries where people are, don't have the same level of rights and privileges. Maybe in some country like Iran, this would never happen to them anyway. You're never going to be able to see this stuff. But I think from the larger perspective, if you want to look at it from a more capitalist and a more democratic perspective, you a, want a to have a globalist perspective, info. if you will. Very interesting, yeah. Britique. I thought America was the only country that mattered. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, that's MAGA. Make America great again. That's right. And MAGA, it's not, I mean, whenever you speak about MAGA, MAGA, Make America Great Again, is Trump's, like, you know, philosophy. But MAGA goes through a lot of different spectrums within the Republican Party. Whether you're a left-leaning Republican, right-leaning Republican, 
moderate Republican, evangelical Republican. Because the purpose of MAGA is to believe that America should be the center of the world. You don't have to be any ideology to believe that. You just have to be in that mindset that America should be at the forefront of things and America should be better than they were before. America should be greater than they were before, aka America should be great again. And hence, this is what led this major controversy to happen because Biden does not like MAGA Republicans. He hates them, per se. And that's the story. So President Joe Biden lashed out Tuesday or on Thursday night at Republicans who have embraced the Make America Great Again philosophy, central to Donald Trump's presidency, saying it's like semi-fascism. Biden made the comment at a fundraiser for Maryland gubernatorial candidate Wes Moore in Bethesda, Maryland. What we're seeing now is the beginning or the death knell of an extreme MAGA philosophy. It's not just Trump. It's the entire philosophy that underpins the I'm going to say something. It's like semi-fascism. America must choose. You must choose whether our country will move forward or backward, he said. Trump and the extreme MAGA Republicans have made their choice to go backwards, full of anger, violence, hate, and division. Biden said he respects conservative Republicans, but not MAGA Republicans. The president has for months linked a majority of the GOP to Trump because they have defended the former president and embraced his ideology. The MAGA Republicans just don't threaten our personal rights or, and economic security, Biden said. They're a threat to our very democracy. They refuse to accept the will of the people. They embrace political violence. They don't believe in democracy. So that was a very fiery speech. I mean, when Nick was talking about it, Biden was giving this speech. It's like a big red, like, you know, like emblem going on in the back. It's all like fired up. I mean, this might be the most anti, anti you could be against the Republicans for Biden per se. And generally speaking, apart from Trump, you haven't really had many people that have just gone straight up to attack the other side. And when Hillary Clinton did it, when calling all these MAGA Republicans deplorables, well, she didn't have a great turnout in that election. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on this speech? Yeah, so if you haven't actually heard the speech or read the transcript, I highly recommend you do so. This is some of the most damning language Biden has ever used against Trump and the people that vote for Trump and his constituency. Before this point, it was all about unity and bringing people together. And he really wasn't specifically calling out these MAGA people other than the protesters, rather rioters, whatever you want to say on January 6th. But in this speech, he's basically coming out and saying that a huge percentage of our country are extremists because he said the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. And that's a big part of what is a Republican nowadays. He's essentially saying that these guys are all he's uh, painting the entire Republican Party uh, at present as being extremist. And that's why you can't vote for them. It's uh, uh, I would say it's it's a little dangerous rhetoric. Um, he hadn't gone this far before, but like you said, with the basket of deplorable statement, it's the exact same sentiment where if you have this certain set of beliefs, you're dangerous, you're a danger to society, you're a danger to America, and therefore we got to take care of you. And that's not productive. I don't think that's going to unite people. I don't think that brings more safety to our country. It just adds to the divisiveness. And I see this as a clear political shot that's kind of like initiating his next presidential run, who he anticipates fighting against some MAGA candidate. And I think we all see that at least as a, a likely possibility that the, the person running for the Republicans is going to be a MAGA candidate. So 
man, I I'm, I don't think that was a smart move. I think it's going to end up biting him. Like you said, the optics of having that red background and him slamming his desk. It looks like a 1984 movie, basically. I don't want to see that. So Yeah, I'm pulling up some transcripts here where, I mean, he does start off and he's like, I'm the president. I'm for the president of the United States, you know, not the president of red America or blue America, but of all America. And then the very next sentence, he's like, but I have to tell you the truth, no matter how painful it is. MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. They do not recognize the will of the people. And he sort of go, goes off from there and says it as Pratik put it very nicely. But to be honest, as I listened to the speech initially, like Tyler, you had mentioned, I, I was pretty like shocked. I was like, wow, he's really going out at this. And I think, frankly, it would have been a little bit better to call out the specific MAGA politicians and say like, hey, these politicians are garbage and kind of go on that route. But I think directly going at MAGA voters who up until, I don't know what, how, how long has it been? Six years since that movement really started? That's still a young movement. It's not like fully cemented. And I think those voters in like 10 years or so could very easily fall into a different category. Sure, they may have some of the same core beliefs and whatever, but I just don't think that going after that specific group was the smartest. I think it would have been better suited for him to go after some of the politicians like Matt Gates, like MTG, like others, who are frankly garbage people. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I just think that would have been easier. And I think it would have been more on like, oh, these leaders in the Republican Party, you know, are really getting too out of line. But at the same time, I don't know. I got to say, as a person who, you know, we, we, do, we talk politics every week, right? But even I find myself from time to time kind of waning on like, hey, you know, do I really have to go out there and vote? Like, you know, does my voice really matter that much or whatever? Like, you know, things are okay in this country. They're not terrible. And then I, you know, kind of listened to what he was saying and reread the transcript. And I was like, wait, no, there are actually serious issues at stake that I fundamentally disagree with and just can't see myself ever supporting the MAGA Republicans on. I want to vote against them. And that's, to me, at least as a Democrat voter, what I appreciated about the speech, because even though, yes, it was divisive, it was drawing that clear line to say, like, hey, this is why you should not vote for them and why you should vote for me and why this isn't even an issue. So I guess on one hand, I totally agree with what you're saying. I don't think you should have gone after individual voters. But at the same time, it's like a, it's a weird conversation, right? Because for any politician, Biden included, I don't think it's a winning strategy. But for someone like Trump, he said it for four years. He said Democrats, you know, were, were treasonous, were unpatriotic, you know, terrible people. He just kept going on all these quotes saying how bad Democrats are and kind of attacked them as human beings. And you know what? No one really cared because it was Trump. He could get away with it. But Pratik, I know we've talked about this a lot. How do you kind of feel about the MAGA movement and about Biden talking about this? And do you think Trump is really the only politician who can kind of have that type of speech and, you know, not be affected by it? I think so. I think there's a lot of different parallels to this. So what I would say is the first part where Biden talks about he's trying to separate these mainstream Republicans from MAGA Republicans. If you look at the primaries, and I've been saying this for the last few episodes, all the primaries are being won by whoever Trump is endorsing. I mean, there's a few states that Trump is not endorsing the people because there's some state like Washington or Oregon, and those places have like some Republican guy that's not Trump selected. That guy's not going to win in the Republican Party, or that girl's not going to win in the Republican Party in, when it comes to the general. And that's because those places are all really blue. I think this is the challenge here, is that 
when it comes to Trump, Trump is always getting bashed. That works for him and it doesn't work for him. But in many cases, that's what makes him different. Since Trump came onto the scene in 2015, he was automatically looked at as being like this terrible person from the bat. Like he literally announces presidency or announces presidential candidacy. And the first thing is, oh, this Trump guy, he's terrible, yada, yada, yada. And then that kind of became what made Trump Trump. Trump got to where he was by being attacked and attacking back. It's a very different scenario. Nobody is attacking Biden. Even Republicans, you they attack Biden. Sure, Trump attacks everybody. He's a little bit different. But the party itself isn't going after Biden at the same flavor as the Democratic Party is going after Trump. Now, people can have all their assumptions. Oh, Trump's divisive. Trump's bad, yada, yada. Difference is, is that Trump had a lot of different things going for him that Biden or none of the other Republicans or Democrats really had. First off, he's a self-made person. He didn't win because he had money. He didn't win because of financial donors. He won because people liked Trump's message. He created a whole agenda called MAGA. He literally created his own philosophy that kind of became the party. I think it's a very different scenario than a lot of these other people because to me, if Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz were running, were running and Trump wasn't there, they're all basically replaceable. Same as on the Democrat side. If Joe Biden is there, Pete Buttigieg is there, Kamala Harris is there, um, or what is, it, what is her name, Elizabeth Warren is there, you're essentially voting for the same person. Elizabeth Warren is a little bit more left and Bernie Sanders is a little bit more left, but my point is that all those people are all generic politicians. In this situation, I think that's what makes Trump a little bit different. Plus, he has, I mean, I've heard this a lot, but I don't know how much it really influences people. But the fact is that he took a dollar salary. That's one thing. It's random, but that's what a lot, I've heard a lot of people become very enthusiastic about Trump, especially in the get-go about. Fact is that he's a business person. He's not an establishment politician, all that stuff. Well, and then now let's think about it from a political perspective. I think if you look, compare somebody like Biden and Trump, Biden has been in office longer than most people have even lived in this country. And that's a weird thing to say, but it's true. Biden is like almost 80 now. He's been in office for more than half his life. And the fact is that because he's been in office, he's ex there's more expectations from him on how he talks about things, how he responds to certain allegations, how he delivers himself, delivers his speeches. And I think that's the consistent thing relates to all other politicians. When Hillary Clinton said basket of deplorables, she lost the election. When somebody like Joe Biden does this kind of stuff, it's similar to if Mike Pence goes out and becomes like a hardcore right wing idiot. Like, you can't do that stuff. Politicians are very calculated, very, you know, organized on how they say things, what they say, and how they deliver their speeches. If you listen, if you're a Democrat and you go listen to Ted Cruz today, you'll be like, man, I kind of like the way he talks. I might disagree with him, but man, he sounds good. That's the same way if you are a Republican and you go listen to somebody that's an establishment politician like Barack Obama. You will have the same exact thinking. Obviously, you will disagree with them. You will disagree with their viewpoints. You will think they're terrible candidates, yada, yada, yada. But there's a way you analyze and view that politician. And when it's Trump, that's the thing, is that Trump got away with a bunch of stuff. Trump, Trump made fun of Ted Cruz's wife. Trump made fun of Jeb Bush. Trump made fun of George W. Bush, who was the former president. Yeah, so Nick, what's your thoughts on this? Sorry. 
I no, I was just gonna say you make a really good point. I mean, when Biden was running, one of the core things he was running on his message was, "Wow, this Trump guy has been really crazy these past couple of years. Wouldn't it be nice if we had someone normal?" And I know people don't like, you know, politicians are some of the least like people in this country, right? But at the same time, that was part of his campaign thing, which is, hey, I'm going to bring things back to normal. It's not going to be crazy anymore. You know, we're all going to kind of get along or try to get along and we're going to have some unity. And this is a very clear departure from that, which I know we all talked about to say, hey, look, I want unity with the mainstream Republicans, but the MAGA Republicans, you know, they're a threat to the foundations of this country and essentially painting them out as, you know, anti-American and an enemy of, you know, uh, an enemy. So I don't know, Tyler, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I'm actually going to respond to what Nick had said initially. I just see one, one flaw with what you said. So just like gender, MAGA is a spectrum. I think that's important to realize because as far as I could tell, potentially a quarter of this country may identify as MAGA. So the president had called out about a quarter of the population specifically. Now, when you call it a Republican or Democrat and be that generic, you're not targeting specific people. But when you come out and say this block of people are extremists and that makes up a quarter of the country you're supposed to be running, you're putting yourself in some deep water. I think that that was a terrible mistake because even Trump, I don't think specifically called out such a wide group of the Democrats. He would target Democrat politicians. He would target Democrat policies. He would say Democrats in general. I I think Biden actually went past Trump in calling out specific voter base because I think at the end of the day something Trump understands is that even some moderate Democrats might be able to vote for him if he's able to temper himself he's a populist he wants as many people to vote for him as possible Uh, but he didn't specifically cut out a portion of the population and basically it completely exclude them from ever potentially voting for him in the future so man I think this is a major fuck up I think you called out too too many people if he had said the people at January 6th are extremists and those kinds of people we need to watch out for or whatever, he would be in a much better position because that's close to what the mainstream Democrat line has been. But no, he called out MAGA people. And look, I know plenty of MAGA people that are just regular Americans. That's just a fact of the matter. And when the president's calling you an extremist, you're going to make some enemies. It's not a good way to bring people together and to, to fix the wounds this, cover, this country's been experiencing over the past few years. So everything I hated about Trump is kind of coming into Biden now. And you talk, Nick, you admit, you brought, uh, both Pratik and Nick had mentioned this, like Biden's turning into what he hated originally. And what is he, if not the calm, moderate voice that he was voted to be in? I think Biden also, the thing is you're voted for an establishment politician against Trump. That's all it was. I mean, even if there were Republicans that voted for Biden, they didn't vote for Biden because of his ideas. They voted for Biden because he was basic. If Biden moves away from being basic, <laughs> Biden's a basic you're not, bitch, guys. <laughs> yeah, you're not you're not getting anywhere. And I think that's the challenge here is like if anybody else did this kind of stuff, it would be like if Trump did this is different because Trump always did this from the get-go. Trump targeted people. He didn't target groups. He targeted uh, Elizabeth Warren. He did target Nokia. Oh, no, dude, no, he on. did all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mexicans, immigrants, shithole countries. It's yeah. just, yeah. What I'm yeah. saying is it's Biden covered a bigger part of the population and called them an extremist than Trump ever had. I mean, all I'm saying is that all I'm saying is that Trump is the only one that's kind of got away with this. 
Generally speaking, I don't even like this divisiveness. I think it's bad whenever you can't, like, not all of us are demagogues. Demagogues is the word. When everything that everyone says, everything that the party says, you automatically believe it. All of us are in some form of a spectrum. We're not all socially conservatives if you're a Republican. You're not all fiscally liberal if you're a Democrat. You're somewhere along the spectrum. Everybody believes what they believe. And I think what happens is, is that when there's a big group like MAGA, it's similar to there being a big group like Black Lives Matter. Sure, Black Lives Matter, you're going to have some people that were more extreme than other people that were parts of the Black Lives Matter, but Black Lives Matter was a movement. Same as MAGA being a movement. The focus of MAGA is that you put America at the center. The way a lot of people think about this is very different. Some MAGA Republicans are more concerned on the immigration aspect. We need to try to limit the amount of immigrants coming in so we are able to make the people that are living in America more successful. Then you have some people that will argue that, oh, America spends so much money on the world stage. The entire international organization model that literally got crafted because of FDR and Truman, the reason why it's successful is because America is the financial and economic and political head of it. And we military. finance everything. We are we're where everything is headquartered. The United Nations is even headquartered in the United States. I think that's the way a lot of MAGA people look at it. And then the other way is that we need to be at the top of everything. We need to have the best military. We need to have the best economy. We need to be the top of the top. And I guess that thing, that you can even be a Democrat and believe that same exact logic. It's not like Democrats are like, man, I want America to suck. They're like, there's going to be Democrats that are going to be like, man, I want my country to be the best. But they're focusing on different things. Nick could argue America should be the leader of environmental policy. We should be the top of the top when it comes to tackling and fighting climate change. That's a MAGA ideology, but with the environment. You can't you can't argue that a, argue you can't argue that there is a group that believes in something automatically making them semi-fascist. And semi-fascism is fascism is the philosophy that Adolf Hitler used to have. So basically you're saying that all of these MAGA Republicans are like semi-Hitlers. And that's not the way to go about it. And I think if Trump was to do that right now against Democrats, Trump may not win. And I think that's the problem here is that, you know, maybe for Democrats, their focus is different. And for Republicans, their focus is different. But the core philosophy is if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat politician, that you're getting elected and you're running for office so you can make the country better than it was before. And that's the focus that MAGA was supposed to be. And, you know, talking about making the country better, um, what do we think about weapons here on this podcast? So President Biden talking uh, that he wanted to declare an assault weapons ban until he told voters to not vote for anyone that opposes the assault weapons ban bill. Now, we had discussed this bill. It had gone through Congress, currently going through the Senate, um, but it's been a very hot topic. And you have Biden coming out and saying you cannot vote or support any candidates that are they that don't want to ban assault rifles. Um, so what are you guys' thoughts? Do you guys think that uh, him coming out and saying this is divisive, it's not a good idea, or is he just telling the party lying and doing what pretty much any other democrat would do because that's kind of where i'm leaning in this situation basically he said that this november if you have to if you have to ask a candidate you have to ask every single candidate when you before you vote whether they are for banning assault weapons or for not banning assault weapons and biden was saying that if they say no then you don't vote for them 
And I think that's just part of the Biden philosophy. It's the same as the MAGA thing. You're either on his side or you're not on his side. I think this kind of fits into that same mold. But the difference is this is a Democratic Party policy. This has never yeah. changed. Democrats have always been about banning guns. I mean, they try to make it banning assault rifles, which is 95% of the actual guns. But in the end of the day, this isn't anything different. If Biden was like, I'm in support of assault weapons, he'd probably be kicked out of office. But that's the thing is that's his party philosophy. He's going with it. He just tends to go to extreme. And that's my issue with Biden. It's like, sure, Trump went extreme. Okay, what makes Biden different? Nothing. For me, this is not the same as him calling MAGA ex extremist. This is, you have a policy idea, you don't want them to vote for the other guys. But when you say a section of the country's extremist, I mean, you, it, it, you're pretty much saying anything goes against those guys. They're extremists. They're the enemies. They're dangerous. He's not saying that with this, this gun thing. He's saying don't vote for those guys because they don't believe in this policy. That's, to me, completely, and that's perfectly yeah. fine to say. You just shouldn't call a huge portion of the country you're in extremists when they're just not. That's just not, that's just not the case. And you're the president, and you can't say that, in my opinion. What are, you what are your thoughts on this, Nick? Because we've talked about assault weapons in the past. Are you in support of this bill? <laughs> like I, I would need to reread the bill text, but I think the broader thing here is, is still the conversation around MAGA. And I think part of it, um, Tyler, is like you were saying, that there is this you know, kind of very broad definition for what falls within MAGA. I mean, Pratik mentioned some of it, but um, I think, for example, when you try to look up like what is MAGA, you will not be able to find a concrete definition because so many people, like you were saying, identify with it. Although I do have to take issue with the fact that Pratik said that I <laughs> was part of that movement in a way. I, I don't really associate <laughs> with that um, for the environmental stuff. I think it's about time to move past Biden onto California and some crazy stuff going on with the potential minimum wage hike. So Pratik, what's up? So California signs a law to create a minimum wage of $22 an hour for all fast food employees in the state. So California Governor Gavin Newsom on Monday signed a law to make the state minimum wage $22 an hour for all fast food employees in California. Newsom believes this law will give half a million fast food workers more power and protections despite the objections of restaurant owners who warned it would drive up consumers' costs. The landmark law creates a 10-member fast food council with equal numbers of workers, delegates, and employers' representatives, along with two state officials empowered to set minimum standards for wages, hours, and working conditions in California. California is committed to ensuring that the men and women who have built, helped build our world-class economy are able to share in the state's prosperity, Newsom said in a statement. Today's action gives hardworking fast food workers a stronger voice and seat at the table to set fair wages and critical health and safety standards across the industry. The law caps minimum wage increases for fast food workers at chains with more than 100 restaurants at $22 an hour next year, compared to the statewide minimum of $15.50 an hour with cost of living increases thereafter. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on California raising the minimum wage to $22.50 $22 an hour? I, before Tyler gets in on this, I want to give one important caveat, which is that it only applies to large restaurant change, chains and not to those with fewer than 100 locations. So I'm not sure how that would end up impacting the franchising model, which we've talked about quite a bit on this show, where Pratik has educated all of us on franchisees in the hotel industry. But I think that shifts the conversation just a little bit. And I think for franchisees, 
I don't want to get too far into that because I don't know, you know, they're the whole legality. So involving let, me, let me add one but, thing with that mm-hmm. because I was just giving neutral story. I wasn't being biased. I wasn't trying to anyway. So with these fast food restaurants, so McDonald's, Wendy's, Subway's, Dunkin' Donuts, I mean, Krispy Kreme is not franchise, but a lot of those franchisee, franchise restaurants, they're all franchisees. So they're all franchisee owned. So fast food restaurants are the, fa- are the restaurants that are more likely to pay minimum wage workers. And that basically encompasses all these franchisees. So the question is going to be how California dictates that. Because with California, they just like increasing all these regulations. They're going to make sure that everybody gets paid $22 an hour. But the main issue is going to be how they implement all that. Because if I'm a McDonald's franchisee, I can have a strong McDonald's franchise or I can have a bad McDonald's franchise. It depends on where I am, how I'm doing, how my financials look, etc. So I don't know how that's going to go, but I have a feeling all they're going to do is they're going to be like, oh, McDonald's, big company, all their people, $22 an hour. I don't know if it's going to go the way that I would want it to, but I think that's the challenge in the situation. And that's the way that people are going to, should look at it, but they're not going to look at it because they're going to be like, oh, fast food workers, we're helping the industry. But the fact is that, you know, fast food is all primarily chain franchisee locations. Exactly. You really think there's going to be a a non-franchisee restaurants that have over 100 locations? I mean, that's extremely unlikely. That tells me they're probably only targeting the franchises. They're targeting McDonald's, those guys. And like like Pratik was saying, you got to look at them. I know it's it's difficult because they have corporate and whatever, but they're independent owners and operators of these stores. And a lot of people work there, sure, but... This is just going to speed up the fact that we don't. They're 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 going to increase the uh, the automation in the back end. So there's going to be a robot flipping the burgers. There's going to be a ro- robot cooking the fries. They may be able to do a thing where it just hands you the food without a person there. It just incentivizes not having more employees. And at the end of the day, you're going to have like one or two employees, and then it's all going to be automated. And this isn't going to end up helping people. Apart from that. We can't have it all. We're saying we want inflation to go down, but we're going to be raising the minimum wage to a higher degree. What do you think is going to happen here? We've talked about it so many times before. And like, even if you want a minimum wage, like it's perfectly respectable and reasonable. You can't have that constantly creep up because if everyone makes more, nobody makes more. And you're not even helping the people you think you're going to be helping because at the end of the day, a lot more people aren't even going to be able to get the jobs because they're how many 22 an hour jobs are these fast food places going to be able to afford? Probably not very many. So ultimately, this is just silly to me. I think even if you're a Democratic, I think that's still a little much, in my opinion. 15, okay, we're there. But now it's now it's one of those things where it's like, I, get, I hate using slippery slope arguments. This looks like a slippery slope to me. Well, Tyler, one thing I could see is, for example, um, I think it's commonly framed as this, and feel free to jump in here or Tyler also feel feel free here but I think one thing that's commonly framed for example look at Heritage Cato other think tanks on the Republican side where they will say uh, essentially your line where this may end up hurting low-income workers where the neoclassical idea is sort of look if you end up implementing an artificial price floor on something anything whether that's the minimum wage you know rent control whatever um, I guess rent control would be a price ceiling, but let's say it's a price floor, something like a minimum wage. That ends up, you know, benefiting the workers who are already in those positions. But in terms of other people trying to get into those jobs, it can potentially 
you know, cut you off so that you don't have as much economic mobility for people who aren't even getting in that into those positions. But at the same time, it's like it's it's a fast food job. It's it's not exactly like you have to have, you know, lines and lines of experience unless you're going for a managerial role. Like if you had to be like the GM of a fast food chain, I would hope that you have experience for that. And I could see you being compensated a little bit more for that. But apart from that, I mean, that is sort of the classical thing where it's like, oh, you you want to unionize. Well, one of the I guess arguments against it is that it's not bad for the workers in the union. I'm just going to be clear. I get that there's all the theory stuff, but like straight up, like it is good for you if you are in the union. Okay. If you have seniority in that union, it is very good for you. But for people who aren't in the union, who are also in that industry, who are working alongside you, it's sort of saying like, all right, so all the money that's in that industry is going towards you, specific group of people, all the people who potentially get involved with that, who aren't necessarily in that union already, it's a little bit harder for them. So just wanted to point that out and I guess be honest where it's like, hey, yeah, even though I don't fully agree with it, I have read what Heritage has put out. I have read what Cato has put out. I have a lot more reading to do, but just wanted to offer that up um, to, to be try to be a little bit honest here. But at the same time, I don't know. I think this is good for fast food workers in California. You're getting paid more money per hour. Sure, I think there's the risk of like Amazon unionizing where they just decide to shut down the whole warehouse and close up shop and move out. And that's going to be a bad outcome. But in terms of if that shop is still open and you're getting paid that money, it's good for you. If you're a fast food worker, this is good for you in California. I don't see it I any think, other way. Well, it's good it's luck terrible. being a fast food worker when there's going to be two workers at each restaurant. <laughs> but anyways. And I think it's terrible because I'm an owner. I'm looking at it from an owner's perspective. The fact is that how are you going to afford to pay for all these people? You're going to raise the prices of your product. Certain products exactly. you're not going to pay that, that much for. That gets put to the consumer. That's products. When you go buy something, there's a value for it. When you hire somebody, this is such a this is a thing. There's a value for it, the job that you're doing. There's only so much you can pay for a position. I can't overpay for that position. I think of it like fantasy football. It's such a weird example. But the thing is like, all right, if I pick a crappy player in the first round of my draft, I'm never going to be able to get that value from that crappy player that I got at the first round of my draft who's supposed to be the best player that I have. I think that's the same situation when it deals with food. There's certain amounts that people are willing to pay for food. If you go beyond that spectrum, no one is going to buy that food. The value of that restaurant chain is going to go down. Their stocks are going to plummet. Less people are going to buy their products. I think that's how it is with all this situation. I just think that we have to look at all of these fast food chains and realize that if you pay everybody 22 bucks an hour, all of these people are going to switch to kiosks because most of these people have already switched to kiosks. And what they're going to do is they're just going to try to find ways to replace as many people as they can because they can't afford to make prices of all those products go beyond that level. No one is going to spend $12 for coffee from Starbucks. I mean, look, $12 coffee from Starbucks may be great. You're already overpaying for their coffee. You were already paying like $7. You, you don't live in Arlington, Virginia. People will pay $12 for a cup of coffee here. But okay. sorry, go on. For, if, right, they have, most if they have the willing, <laughs> revealed preferences, Tyler, if they have the willingness to pay, if the marginal but, benefit is greater than the marginal cost, okay? Look, I'm taking an econ class right now. I know what's up. You do the little derivatives of the curves. You take a look. Maybe you do the integrals. Supply, maybe you mess with that. Demand. But no, like, I, for Pratik's point, just wanted to briefly cut in and say, like, yeah. yeah, I can fully recognize that, like, to a business, if your marginal cost of employing that extra employee 
is going to be totally shattered and way more than the value you would get, you're not going to hire them. And then who's that good for? It could be that someone was really hurting for a job, would have been fine at $16 an hour, and now they can't get that job because the minimum's there. And you're, again, as a business, not willing to hire at that minimum price because now you're legally not able to. And so, yeah, I could get that. Artificial floors are no good, man. You think you're helping people out, but at the end of the day, I don't really feel like you're actually helping the people you think you're trying to help. And it's hard to get these laws reversed. And once they're implemented, there's no going back. So it's not something I like to see. And Starbucks is a bad example, I guess, too, because Starbucks doesn't have franchises. But McDonald's is the largest franchiser in the world. Same as Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has a lot of franchises. You can't own a Chick-fil-A without it being a franchise location. They have a few that are owned by Chick-fil-A corporate, but for the most part, they're all franchise locations. And I think that's the same scenario with almost all fast food restaurants. Like there's not many that are franchise that are like corporate owned. There are some, like, but they're not they're not the vast majority. And I think the problem is that this is such a large encompassing bill that you're going to screw over more people that you're gonna than you're gonna help. And if I am somebody that's gonna go work, try to work in the fast food industry, I don't come with high credentials. I don't come with a college degree because why would a college degree student go flip burgers? I think that's the thing here and we have to recognize that and we have to understand that there is a worth that comes to every single position and if you overpay for that worth it's only going to make it bad for everybody in the long run agreed and hey guys we got one more story today we actually did there's a drought going on in china a major story there but we're gonna hit that next week uh for now we're just gonna close out on actually a trump gaffe of the day so usually it's biden this week we got trump so what happened well there's this there's a social media network called truth social and trump tweeted i I don't know if you call it tweeting or whatever they do but he said why are people so mean now i had to double check that that was actually real because i just couldn't believe it but my god that is hilarious that trump comes out and says why are people so mean uh really i i actually do think this this has some political implications and i'll tell you why so i think so much of what trump is and his populist his populist movement is being a strong man being, you know, always on the attack, never on the defensive, never showing weakness. And I don't think that's necessarily healthy at all, but that's what he went with and it's worked up until this point. Well, now we're seeing weakness. He's saying, why are people so mean? He kind of sounds like a wimp. And that's probably true even of the people that support Trump. So, you know, that's an, an interesting look for Trump. Typically, we don't see this side of him. And I just think it's kind of funny that he actually went out and, and tweeted that to the world. I think Trump's always trying to be in the news. This is another reason why he'll be in the news. People are going to just search up the tabloid. Below. Oh, it said Trump said, why are people so mean? I need to read that thing now. I just think that stuff is not really going to help or hurt Trump. It's just going to keep him in the limelight. Most things that are keep Trump in the limelight are going to propel him to probably be the candidate for the GOP. Maybe not the winner in the general, but at least in the for the minimum, the candidate that will probably win the GOP primary. I don't think anything really changes on this front. He's kind of been the front runner in the GOP primary ever since January 6th began. And it's only going to go, he's only going to improve his chances from there. It's never going to change. And I think that this is just another example of that. And Nick, let me ask you, why are people so mean? I think people, unfortunately, are always going to be mean. No matter how, Mm. as a former president, as a Jesus-like figure who could have delivered this country from sin, who could have led us into a golden age of American revolution, who could have launched a new space force and did, I think, our president, much like Jesus, 
is going to be scorned in his time and beloved in the future. But he spoke his truth on Truth Social. That's what it is, Tyler. I think it's called sharing your truth, and he certainly did. Yes, you heard it here first. Pastor Nick of the MAGA Church coming out, letting us know what's up. But hey, guys, with that, episode 94 of Politicana. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Please share us. We're on every podcast network. And as always, we'll catch you next week. Later.